Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I interview Tom Beyer, a renowned soccer skills coach who's an American, but who has worked primarily in Asia over the years, including Japan. Tom appeared on episode of HBO's Real Sports last fall and had started a pilot program with U.S. soccer for the first time in Washington State, working with parents to build a culture of skill development with children. As he explains in this interview, Bayer's pilot program is no longer being supported by the people running U.S. soccer. I mean, my understanding from what you're saying here is that you felt like you had support from Sunil Gulati at U.S. soccer. Um, you felt like you had support from the Sounders. Uh, and you didn't feel like you had support from the U.S. soccer coaching development group uh, or coaching education group and uh, Dan Flynn. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty accurate. Yep. Yep, that's what I see. Yep. Wow. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is Tom Beyer, who is one of the most fascinating people and coaches, I think, out there in world soccer. He's an American uh, who has a very interesting past. I wrote a big story about him last fall uh, when he had been hired to run a, a pilot program for U.S. soccer in the state of Washington with Seattle Sounders. Uh, and before we get into what has happened uh, with that program, uh, I wanted to welcome you on the show, Tom. Uh, it's great to speak to you. And, and also just uh, if you could get into sort of what your unique story is for any of our listeners who uh, aren't aware of it. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, great to be here with you, Grant. Um, I'm originally from New York. I was born in the city in the Bronx and but lived most of my life upstate New York where uh, I'm proud to say I went to Ulster County Community College, which back in the day, uh, in the 70s, was a national perennial powerhouse. Um, I wound up <laughs> going down to the University of South Florida um, and played at the University of South Florida. And the really, really long story short is, is that I wound up over in Japan in the late 1980s, um, and I played for a club called Hitachi FC, which is in the in the J League now, mm -hmm. um, which plays under the name of Kashiwa Raceall. Mm -hmm. um, I had a short stint there, um, and then it was, I believe, 1988 or nine. I finished playing, uh, and I got into development. And development, as in, I became very interested in in coaching young kids, uh, grassroots uh, development. Um, and there's a bit of a timeline for my story. Um, but I, I, I carved out, you know, kind of a niche as a, as a technical coach um, here in Japan. I was I brought the uh, the wheel curver program to Japan here, a commercial venture, set up a a, a lot of schools, um, camps, um, just everything to do with technical um, coaching. Um, and I headed that up for about 15 years. But it, it wasn't really until um, I got married and had we had our own children. Um, that I had a really complete rethink on on development, um, which is, you know, maybe we can delve a little bit more into that during the conversation, but um, where I've come up with this whole concept of, of soccer starts at home or football starts at home, according to where you're living, <laughs> um, with the idea that, that, you know, culture plays a massive role in development um, that I think that many professionals um, don't take into account. Um, and you know, I've spent the last, I've got two boys, one's nine and one is 12. And, uh, and I, I basically, 
use them as my experiment, so to speak, um, of trying to see, well, what could a parent do with a small child? So that's a little bit of the background, and I'll come up for air here and let you uh, have some thoughts as well. Yeah, yeah. I can certainly share a couple of other things uh, that maybe are better off with with me sharing them in the sense that you are one of the most well-known uh, youth soccer coaches in the world, uh, especially in Asia, where you spent so much time in Japan over the years, but you've done work in other countries in Asia, uh, including China. Um, you have had a, a regular appearance on a Japanese TV show uh, that uh, certainly brought your recognition level higher in Japan um, and have had a lot of success working with uh, players on the men's and women's side who uh, became part of the Japanese national teams that have gotten so much better uh, in recent years, and including winning the Women's World Cup. Um, it always tickled me, I guess, that here was this American who was such a, a good youth development coach um, in a different country, and yet it was like here in the United States, we didn't seem to have much awareness of you, even though we had so many challenges of our own when it came to youth development and soccer. And uh, I think I became aware of you around 2010, 2011, um, maybe around when the Japanese women's team was doing so well, and uh, you started to make a few appearances in the media, but I was so excited uh, last fall, and I wrote a story about this that got a lot of attention for Sports Illustrated's website. There was uh, a Real Sports HBO uh, episode that spent a lot of time with you about the project that you were going to be working on, this pilot program in Washington State, where uh, you were going to finally come to the U.S. and, and at long last... Uh, be working with the situation here in the wake of the U.S. men's national team failing to qualify for the World Cup. And uh, I guess if you could go into a little more detail when you talk about football starts at home, soccer starts at home, about what that philosophy is that you've developed. Sure. Well, it was, you know, having been a technical coach, that's been my my uh, my specialty for the, you know, close to 25 years now. So I knew the uh, and understood the importance of the technical component of the game that, you know, the technical component is the you know, makes the foundation for all the other parts of the game. And if you don't get that part right, um, it, it's it, it, it's pretty tough to to catch up um, on the technical side of things. So. It wasn't until my kids were born, uh, my first son, I was doing an event. Um, and during the event, it was here in Japan. It was in 2006. And my first son had just started work, walking. And I was doing an event for, I've been under contract for many years with Adidas. Mm -hmm. And I was doing an event, a World Cup event. And I was after the event, I was signing these miniature uh, footballs, these, these replica balls. Um, small balls, you know, like we call a size two, and I was giving them away to some kids for for Adidas. And the light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, well, small ball, small foot for my child. So I basically asked these Adidas uh, guys to, that were looking after me to send me a few of these balls to my house. Big box arrives. I've got 20 balls there. So I, I decided to take two or three balls, and I put them in every room. Um, and every time my boy would walk up to address the ball, I would discourage kicking and, and, and try to encourage more of this ball manipulation, pulling the ball back. And I was starting to see, because I'd always been working with other people's kids. I didn't have kids of my own. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't realized how, 
how much time a small child and infant spends indoors inside the house. So what I did was, you know, it was the age of when the iPhone started coming out as well. And so I documented my son's uh, development. But more than that, I really started putting the development phase under a microscope um, about, you know, pondering this idea of like why out of 211 member associations in FIFA, only eight have won a World Cup. And out of that eight, there's only really a couple serial repeat winners. Mm-hmm. And so I really started studying what's happening in those countries. And, I, and I, I more or less found the same thing over and over again, that there was no real kind of special coaching going on at the youth level. It's just that those cultures were very conducive to developing players. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody could really explain it other than, you know, in Brazil, football is a religion, you know, and, <laughs> and people couldn't really explain it. And so now fast forward, and then I started studying national curriculums. I started studying the great players from many different generations. And it kept circling back that there was a, a common denominator. The best players in the world had very, very early engagement, two, three, four years of age. And it seemed to be that the father and sometimes the mother were the great influencers. Mm-hmm. So I started seeing that play out with my own kids. Um, so then I created this, you know, this presentation that I've literally taken around the world in the last several years because I wanted to basically put my work in front of as many so-called experts as possible to open myself up to criticism, to see, okay, have have I missed something, you know? And the reality is, is it's been overwhelming. Everybody has embraced this. And I'm talking about, I've been invited to some of the biggest clubs in the world, whether it's Ajax in, in, in Amsterdam, I've been invited to Manchester United, um, I've been invited to uh, Napoli by the owner of the club mm-hmm. who invited me into his home because he read the book. So, And I've, I've presented to over 50 technical directors at UEFA. My Last year was a big highlight. I was invited to Sochi, Russia, to sit on a panel discussion with the uh, secretary general from FIFA. Um, only just a couple of weeks ago, I just presented um, to over 21 different countries, and Brazil represented uh, Italy represented, Spain represented, Germany represented. So I've been able to get in front of some pretty big hitters in the in the in the world of the of our sport. Um, and when they see the work, everybody agrees that I've more or less kind of found a bit of a black hole in development. Um, and that is is that culture and parents and that age of the golden age of skill acquisition is much much younger than people think because most federations think it doesn't start until around nine or ten years of age. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the, the sport hasn't caught up with what science already knows, and that is is that skill acquisition happens as early as a child starts walking, two, three, four, five years of age. Yeah, and I had and actually now fast forward. No, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, like I actually mentioned that in a story that I uh, I wrote recently on Christian Pulisic about. Uh, you know, his first touch acquisition was happening at a very young age, just, you know, working a little bit with his dad. And I even got uh, a negative response from a uh, pediatrician here in the U.S. on Twitter who said uh, this was a bad thing to be showing to parents or because in his mind, this was encouraging specialization at a young age, which it wasn't, in my opinion. And also... It was almost as if he was saying that uh, this was like asking a five-year-old to throw a, a curveball in baseball, which obviously is not something you want to do with growing bodies. But soccer's different. I mean, like these skills are pretty basic skills, correct? Yeah, the reality, Grant, is, is that in this sport, 
if you don't have early early age engagement, it's very, very difficult to become proficient. And you connect the dots. I mean, that's what I've done. You know, Steve Jobs said, he said, in order to connect the dots, you have to look backwards and not forwards. And that's Mm -hmm. what I did. Mm -hmm. So for 25 years working as a technical coach, being casted on television, creating content, working with brands, working with federations, associations, club teams, and understanding it, I was able to connect some of these dots that nobody could connect. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that, and you know, there, there is, there's a lot, there's, there's not, there's a big controversy or a big discussion about specialization. But mm-hmm. here's the biggest kind of joke about the whole, the whole thing. The U.S. is the biggest country in the world. Basically, where there is no specialization in in most sports, there's only you know the U.S. is one of the biggest multi-sports countries in the world. So the question is, where are the players? Where are the players? So you know you get this. Yeah, there's a school of thought, and it's mostly brought on by academics um, that basically say that uh, you know you shouldn't specialize early. Well, maybe this is a good reason of why. Uh, the, the U.S. has unbelievable, alarming numbers of kids that drop out. 38.5% of American children who play soccer quit by the age of 7. Mm. Another 50% drop out by the age of 10. Mm. Now, I maintain when I see all the research, they say, oh, they point the rifles at the coaches and the parents. Parents are too pushy. The coaches are not good enough. No, you know what it is? One of the, pro- the biggest problems is, is that most of the kids have never learned the proper skills, technical skills, to, to enjoy the game. Mm-hmm. And of course, if, and, and, and of course, when you're six, seven, eight years old, it's not that important. And I know this because I'm talking to you as a father as well of two boys and I've seen. Mm-hmm. So you can take a six year old kid in America or anywhere, let them run around on a full field pitch and play a game and not touch the ball once. And when they come off the pitch, they'll give you a high five and tell you they had a blast. Now, try doing that with an eight or a nine year old and they don't get the ball, or they do get the ball, and they get the ball taken away from them constantly, or they're not good enough because they're, the coach doesn't want to play them in the game when they get older. Not to say that it's right, but this is the phenomenon. Because, you know, and I said this to the FIFA Secretary General in, in Sochi, Russia, a few months back on a panel discussion. I say this is the, we call it the world game. It's failing millions and millions of kids because the majority of kids that play the sport are technically poor. Mm-hmm. Most kids. So, you know? yeah, so... Lead me through how you got connected to U.S. soccer and the Seattle Sounders and Washington State. Sure. Well, you know, my history starts back in around 2013. First of all, Anson Dorrance from UNC. I'm sure everybody knows that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, so Anson Dorrance at UNC, women, women's co- head coach, um, has been a huge supporter and advocator of mine. Um, I had met with Sunil Gulati back around 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was just starting out with this whole philosophy of the stalker starts at home and it was just, it wasn't the right timing, nothing really happened. But so Sunil has known of me um, for many years or at least, you know, since the 2013 or maybe a little earlier than that. Mm-hmm. But the big turning point was in 2016, um, Sunil basically came over to Japan for the world club championship um, game and he asked to meet with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met with him uh, together with my my manager, agent, partner, and um, and basically he thought that the timing is right to uh, you know readdress trying to start a program, a pilot program, um, somewhere in the United States. So this was back in December of 2016, 
Um, and basically it was agreed that we were going to pick a, a city. And, and, and Sunil, I think on the spot, thought Seattle was a good city because it's an easy gateway for me between Tokyo and Seattle. Mm-hmm. And because obviously the Seattle Sounders are, um, are a great uh, franchise there as well, mm-hmm. a great club. Um, and then also he, I believe, had already spoken with the Washington State Association. So there's three stakeholders, right? There's U.S. Soccer, there's the MLS Club, and the State Association. Mm-hmm. So it was decided that we were going to start the pilot program in Seattle. Um, and then that January, a couple of weeks later, I was presenting in Los Angeles. Um, the football starts at home. So things were trying, were catching on. I had, you know... Um, Joe Cummings, um, who did an interview with me for an hour um, as one of the highlights of the, the whole coaches' uh, uh, convention. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were picking up you know, a, lot of, a lot of support. Um, so then we basically talked through it for a couple of months, and then the pilot actually started. I think we signed the contract in June, mm-hmm. um, and we started making our visits in July. We made a couple of visits. Um, but then the big meltdown, you know, nobody, nobody thought when we went into this, when we started it, that the U S was not going to qualify for the world cup. Right. So it wasn't until October, it was around October. And that was exactly the time when, to be honest with you, this, this, this I'm giving you, here, here's the scoop of what really happened. <laughs> so it, I remember you came to me and when, when the U S got knocked out, you sent me a message and you wanted to have an interview with me. Right. Um, and you wanted to ask me, you know, so, a certain uh, questions about, you know, what my thoughts were and, you know, like why I'm not working in U.S. <laughs> but I had. I already started working on the pilot program, but U.S. soccer had never made the announcement. So nobody really knew officially that it kicked off a mm-hmm. few months earlier than that. Okay. So then, you know, U.S. soccer decided that they were going to announce it. And then I think there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. Some people out in the media um, thought that I was hired by U.S. Soccer as like the panacea because they didn't qualify, but nothing's further from the truth. Had absolutely no connection to it mm-hmm. whatsoever. I mean, I would say that like there was definitely more interest maybe publicly once it came out, yes. and it came out that you were involved in this pilot program that they were hoping to scale up around the country uh, if it had you know worked yes. out the way we all hoped it would. Um, and so, you know, given the increased media interest, not just from me, but from HBO and other places in the wake of the U.S. failing to qualify for the World Cup, that was, I guess, part of the connection sure. and part of what got people so excited about you being involved uh, finally in the U.S. So I was wondering if you could explain, like, how many times you ended up coming over uh, to Washington State and how it went. Yeah, so what my, what my responsibility was, was to go to Seattle and convince um, the, the powers to be at the Seattle Sounders that this was a project that they should get behind. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was responsible for convincing the Washington State Board that this was a project to get behind. And then we did a couple of test events as well mm-hmm. um, of, of presenting and doing some work with, uh, with some of the families and people at, uh, around the community. And, you know, everybody was on board. Everybody loved it. The Seattle Sounders loved it. Um, I met with the general manager. I met with the, I mean, the academy director was behind it. Everybody that we, I got in a room and I presented to about 15 or 20 people at the Sounders. Mm-hmm. And they had basically, you know, someone from, uh, you know, just about every part of their organization. Um, and they were behind it, 100%. Okay. Uh, Washington board, uh, everybody was behind it. 
presented to them. And also they brought in some of their stakeholders of, you know, influencers in the community um, that they wanted to, to that I, that I, I presented to. So we got, we, we got nothing but um, positive feedback from everybody. And in a perfect um, world, how would it have proceeded after that? Well, one of the stumbling blocks that we detected was is that inside U.S. soccer, the coaches' education department, these guys were finding it a hard time. They wanted to put what they call some metrics around the program. Hmm. How do you measure it? Hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, what are the quantitative, what are the, the outcomes? How are we going to know that it's working? And they were always stumbling over this question. Hmm. And, you know, the, the point for us was, you know, what the program was going to bring was a couple of things. First of all, increase, in, increasing participation rates, hopefully, um, increasing player retention rates between 6 and 12, and improved quality of technical abilities. So those are what the outcomes are mm-hmm. um, that we spoke about. But they were always stuck on this metrics um, about how, how they're going to measure it. So what we were going to do was basically we were going to roll this out and – you know, the, the contract period was for six months mm-hmm. um, between June and December. But what happened was Seattle liked the program so much, they didn't want to start at the end of the year. They basically wanted to kick it off in the beginning of this year, the season, okay. in March. Um, so, okay, well, then we get out of December and then into January. Um, and then things kind of started to fall apart after that. Okay. So can you lead me through from your perspective what happened? Sure. Well, the the basically the uh, the agreement ran out for the pilot program in December, um, and then we had a series of conversations with U.S. Soccer, um, and basically they told us that their understanding was, or at least they told us this is what you know what, from their side, um, that they were only in this to fund uh, the first part of creating the pilot. But they had no funding to execute anything. Nothing. Uh, so it was basically more or less. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to point out this so, is a U.S. Soccer Federation with a current surplus of around 150 million dollars. Yeah. Well, I know. I you know it, it two and two didn't add up to four, but the reality was is that they told us that, that they were only in it to devise the pilot, and that they weren't going to go any further in extending that agreement. And basically, if you want to do it, you're going to have to find your own funding um, to do that, and more or less kind of good luck with it. Okay. Um, so that's where we, we, we wound up. And then, you know, the Seattle Sounders, when they found out basically U.S. soccer was out of it, um, you know, they weren't ready to, to, to pick up and take the lead because, you know, they thought they were of the same assumption as we were that U.S. soccer was going to see this through at least to the, the pilot phase. So. You know, we, that's basically what happened. Um, and as of currently today, uh, what really needed to be done, we need we needed to create some kind of online platform. That was a part of the that was a part of the whole activation. Mm-hmm. Was you know how can we basically start engaging parents of kids you know between those you know under the age of six. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that Seattle Sounders were so important is because they brought obviously the media component to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Seattle Sounders involved in it, and then obviously you you've got benefits. You've got the benefits of of media. How do you drive media to the awareness of the soccer starts at home? And it was going to be sent around. They 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 came up. Seattle Sounders came up with a really well thought out, devised plan on how to do this. 
Okay. Together. So I'm yeah. what I'm sort of hearing here is that you had funding from three stakeholders. You had uh, U.S. Soccer, the Sounders, and the Washington State Association. Uh, actually, the funding came from U.S. Soccer, and a piece of it came from Washington State and Seattle Sounders. I don't think put any funding into it. They were just basically putting their brand behind it. I see. So they were putting their resources on the ground. You know, their play. You know, uh, potentially uh, access to their players. Um, again, access to their media, uh, access to you know all of the Seattle Sounder fan base as well, and just being be- behind the program. Okay. Um, and we, we were going to devise this uh, this website, this platform, uh, but obviously it didn't get off the ground. It didn't get off the ground with those guys. So what we did, just to, to, to bring you up to date what's happening, we decided, when I say we, my company here in Japan, mm. that we would basically invest into this platform. So we're right now building a platform um, that's almost finished, by the way, um, that we see that can be used possibly. We're going to do something with the Washington State Association but obviously, it's not going to have nearly the impact that it would have potentially had having the you know the Sounders machine behind it, right? Or U.S. Soccer. Or, so it's just a state association, right? But from what it sounds like, is that the Sounders were optimistic and positive about this, and maybe you didn't feel that level of support from U.S. Soccer. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't even think that it was the level of support. I think that when they dropped out, that they basically were. You know, okay, well, you know, they're the ones that came to us asking for help, and then they dropped out first. Okay. So, you know, and, you know, it was, it was a bit bad timing as, as well, of course. As everybody knows, no secret, we had the big election that came up after the beginning of the year. Um, so the landscape changed, you know. I mean, this was basically being driven by Sunil, hmm. um, this initiative. Um, and then, you know, things turned out uh, not as, as, as people had suspected it was going to turn out, you know, when we first started it. So... Sunil was in a position where he was the president of the federation and Carlos Cordero wins the election in February, uh, gets very engaged on the World Cup 26 bid, is traveling all over the world for that. Um, It sounds to me, everything I understand is that there's been a bit of a structural change that Sunil Gulati was more involved in technical program stuff like what you were planning to do and initiatives than the current president is. So were you dealing more with the uh, other folks at U.S. soccer, whether it was Dan Flynn, Jay Berhalter, or the coaching side of things with U.S. soccer? Yeah, well, yeah, in the beginning, I mean, you know, Sunil took the lead only in just setting everything up, but then the actual uh, executing of it, that was done through U.S. soccer's coaches' education department. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was Dan Russell and Frank. Um, so those two guys basically were the guys that showed up to the meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, obviously Dan Flynn was involved as well. Mm-hmm. Even Ryan Mooney was involved. I mean, I was on phone calls with a lot of these different guys, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, I, I, I was a bit disappointed from the beginning or at, when it, when it came to even the announcement, because here we announced this pilot pro. We, we we start this pilot program in June, mm-hmm. um, and nothing's announced. Nothing's announced until October. Right. So we, you know, I can see already this obviously wasn't a priority, right? Or at least to let the people know or the media. And who knows if the if the U.S. hadn't gotten knocked out in October, would they have had any announcements at all? I don't know. Right. 
but they had an announcement. It was a tiny, minuscule thing. I didn't even, I had never even heard of this uh, innovative growth fund. I had no idea where the funding was coming from U.S. soccer. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning of it, I didn't know that this was just a tiny speck part of like uh, a more bigger grassroots initiative because when they came out with the press release uh, about the uh, the program, it was a minuscule, just a couple of sentences. Right. I mean, how much money were we talking about, about how much U.S. soccer provided over those six months? Well, to be honest with you, I, I can't really reveal that because it's in the confidentiality clause of that. But okay. Let's let's put it this way: it wasn't a it wasn't a huge amount. Okay. Um, but you know, it was it was it was within what you would you could imagine it would be to start a pilot program and or at least create the pilot program that's scalable um, out to different markets. Um, it was it was very reasonable. Okay. Um, so it's pretty clear here that U.S. soccer didn't want to continue this. Um, is there any way that you might be able to still have a real impact in the U.S. without having the support of U.S. soccer? Yeah, you could. I mean, there's always ways of doing things, right? But to be honest with you, just on a personal note, I mean, it's going to obviously be a little bit more of an uphill battle because now we have to deal with state associations, Um you know, even a year and a half, two years ago, we had talks. Uh, USYSA came and approached me, mm-hmm. um, and we had some talks, but nothing ever happened with those guys as well. They seem to have loved the program. Um, we had discussions for almost a year, um, but just nothing moved forward. Um, but, you know, when you've got something like this, you've got to kind of hit your wagon to somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got so many different organizations in the U.S., Um you know, you've got the ECNL, you've got, you know, ASA, you've got USYSA, you've got club soccer, you've got MLS, you've got the state associations. I mean, you've got U.S. soccer. I mean, there's just lots and lots of different groups, right? Um, you know, we're, we're going to give it a try, but I can just tell you that, um, you know, it's it, it basically taken a bit of a toll on me. I mean, I, I, I feel like not that I've wasted my time, but I've been doing this now for almost a year and a half. Mm. Um, and we basically couldn't even we couldn't we couldn't get out of the uh, get out of the gate, so to speak, right? So you know, even as a, as a business or as you know, living out here in Japan, I've got other priorities as well. I just flew back from China. I just filmed a an eleven part series down in Australia for Optus, which is the um, which is which is a uh, World Cup rights holder mm-hmm. um, in in Australia. Um, focusing on on uh, on eleven star players and linking their their development to football starting at home and their early age engagement and the role of their parents. So I've got lots of other things. I'm flying to Switzerland next week. I've mm-hmm. um, been invited to FC Lugano to pr- pr- to present at the professional club there, and I've also been invited by UEFA um, to present to those guys. So I've got lots of other things going on. If we were talking about this, you know, a year ago. Um, I could have told you that I was probably thinking about maybe even making a move back to the United States, mm. um, you know, because we seem to have a lot of momentum going. Uh, that's not that's not in play now. So, you know, we've got to we've got to go where where we 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 can find partners that want to work together. And we've got lots of them. That's the good news. But um, and we've got you know the U.S. is just such a huge territory and it's so fragmented. Mm-hmm. There's just so many different organizations. But also on another positive note. I am inundated with um, people contacting me on a near daily basis from the United States. Huh. Associations, club teams, state associations, um, even MLS clubs. 
um, that are asking that are very excited still, but we just have to figure out, well, what, 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 you know, how does it work? Okay. But like I said, we're creating a platform and we're thinking, okay, well, maybe with this platform we can do some kind of licensing agreement with different organizations or do something with our content. But, you know, that, Grant, this has been the frustration because everybody loves what they hear, mm-hmm. but nobody moves. But it seems like we've gotten much, much better with private brands and companies than the actual groups like the, the, the soccer associations or, or the federations that are the ones that are entrusted with developing the game. They all love it, but they don't move. Nobody makes a move. I mean, my understanding from what you're saying here is that you felt like you had support from Sunil Gulati at U.S. Soccer. Um, you felt like you had support from the Sounders, uh, and you didn't feel like you had support from the U.S. Soccer Coaching Development Group uh, or Coaching Education Group and uh, Dan Flint. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty accurate. Yep, yep. That's why I see it. Yep. Wow. Well, um, right. it's uh, a situation where uh, I think it's uh, a real missed opportunity. Uh, you were the one who was living it, but uh, uh, and I also just wanted to get an update. You're doing some pretty cool stuff with China, correct? Yeah, in China. But it was really interesting what we just did in uh, in Australia, where we f- filmed this series. Um, it's going to be, and, and I think this is a way to go in the future too, because we're making that connection. I, I, I selected 11 players that I researched mm-hmm. and found that all of them started very early age engagement with a ball and that their parent, usually the father, but sometimes the mother as well, mm-hmm. were the great influencer. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, Suarez, Modric, Pogba, Hazard, Lewandowski, Cruz, all of them have unbelievable backstories about how they started playing at the age of three, four years old mm-hmm. and how much the father and again, the mother, um, just a little side thing, Eden Hazard, four brothers, all of them professional players, mother and father, both of them professional players. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Pogba, Paul Pogba's father wanted his son to become such a top player that he used to go around the neighborhood and basically coached the other kids so that his son would have good competition to play against. <laughs> okay? so, so there's all these great side stories that nobody's really kind of looked into, you know, because Iniesta's another one. Iniesta's father used to drive him three, four times a week, uh, 70, 70 kilometers round trip to play. He was his first coach as well when he was a young boy. Um, I mean, these are great stories. They're very inspirational stories, but... If you ask people about Iniesta, they believe that his whole career started at the age of 12 at La Mesa, Barcelona. Right, right. But when you really, really put it under the microscope, it's all a similar situation. You know, even in the U.S., if you look at Pulisic, you look at Clint Dempsey, you look at Landon Donovan, all of those players had early age engagement, and basically the family was the important influence. Right. Well, uh I could sit here and talk with you for hours uh, about what you're doing and and what we could be doing here in the States. But uh, thank you, as always, for for joining me and and providing a good discussion and uh, curious to see what sort of response there will be to U.S. soccer's decision here. But good luck with all the stuff you're doing uh, around the world, Tom. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Tom Beyer, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. 
Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-Minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon and Fubo TV. Recent guests include Tim Ream, Jonathan Northcroft, Indy Cowie, and Juan Pablo Angel. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.